We are back with another edition of the Tennis Worthy Podcast, brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, and I'm excited to welcome you to the podcast that brings you conversations with Hall of Famers and legends that go beyond the game. Each year, as you know, the International Tennis Hall of Fame celebrates the sport's greatest players and contributors with tennis's ultimate honor, enshrinement into the Hall of Fame. This exclusive recognition represents the sum of a person's career as being truly at the top of the game, the best of the best. As we are dedicated to preserving tennis's history and celebrating those incredible champions, we frequently ponder the question, what makes a Hall of Famer? What is that unique something that led to their historic success? Was it innate, or did they need to cultivate a winning mindset over time? Answering these questions and more is what the Tennis Worthy podcast aims to do. Chris Bowers is an esteemed tennis journalist of more than three decades and a biographer of Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic. He'll be here chatting with our legendary guests on Tennis Worthy. Today, Chris sits down with Hall of Famer Yvonne Lendl. I don't go anywhere saying, oh, I'm going to see what I learn. I just go and see what I see, and eventually it will help me somewhere down the road. Obviously, eight slams are huge. There are two other achievements which many people don't talk about. If you look at my early round results at Wimbledon, you will be saying, how did he play five sets with this guy? How did he play four sets with this guy? My question was, would be, how the heck did I beat those guys? I don't like doing things halfway. I like to do things properly, and if I can't do it, I prefer not to do them. Somebody enjoys tennis, somebody enjoys ice hockey, somebody enjoys uh, art. I'm sure there are families who talk about art over dinner. Well, we talked about tennis. Lendl was a force on tour in the 1980s, racking up eight major singles championships and 100 combined tour titles. Growing up in a tennis family in Czechoslovakia, Ivan absorbed the game and its details, which, over time, led to a remarkable consistency. Ivan talks about being a ball kid at first and how much he'd learn in just that one week of watching the top players in person. Plus, his greatest achievements which might surprise you, and how golf helps him clear his mind. I'll leave you now with Chris Bowers and Hall of Famer Yvonne Lendl. Chris, take it away. Yvonne Lendl, what do you think it is that makes you a Hall of Famer? I guess uh, getting into the Hall of Fame is uh, kind of a reward for your career. Um, where you have done well and uh, have done well enough to uh, to get in. But when you were a kid learning tennis, you must have been in a squad with kids who could hit the same forehands and backhands as you. What made you better than them? I never thought about it. You, you're a kid, you just go out there and have fun and play, play and enjoy it. Your background was very strongly in tennis. Both your parents played. Was tennis almost like a just part of the family? Oh, certainly. Both of my parents played. Uh, uh, we went to the club every day and and uh, everybody did what they needed to do. I, I went and played tennis with the kids. My mother practiced. My father uh, wasn't already playing when I remember much, but uh, he would hit with me maybe on Saturday, Sunday, and uh, and then he had meetings there because he was uh, in the on the board of the club. and. So, so uh, yeah, it, it was good times. Was it fun? Was it the kind of thing that some kids, they go off and they 
build sandcastles or whatever and the thing that you did with your friends was playing tennis yeah i don't see building sandcastles as fun (laughs) (laughs) some do some do yeah everybody has their things somebody enjoys tennis somebody enjoys ice hockey somebody enjoys uh, art and uh, i'm sure there are families who talk about art over dinner well we talked about tennis but the point was, it was fun as a kid. It, it, was, it wasn't, even though you obviously had a very strong work ethic, that came as part of it because the fun drove it. Or which, which well, was... when you're having fun, it's not work, right? Okay, that's the way you saw it. Yeah. yeah. At what stage did you first get the sense that you were you know, a bit special, going to be good? I never thought that. You, you play, you uh, start playing tournaments and matches, and I started winning some, and... Uh, Okay, so you still have, you're in 12s and then you're 14s and then you go straight to 18s at that time. Uh, that's a difficult jump and um, you don't win as much in 18s as you did in 14s, obviously, first year or two. And uh, I, I never thought that it's something special. You just see people around you who work hard and have fun and uh, who are also winning and you do the same thing. But you did very well as a junior, culminating in winning French Wimbledon Junior Slam titles, and you were the first ever world junior champion. That must have created a a sense of, I can go pretty much anywhere. Not consciously, probably subconsciously. Again, I never, I was very well aware of the fact that it's difficult to go from juniors to, to men's, and that... Uh, you have a long way to go and uh, I never really thought about it in any other way you just try to make step go step by step while you're enjoying it did you have any setbacks or any serious obstacles that you had to overcome plenty I mean everybody does how did you get over yours well you just keep doing what you're doing believe in what you're doing, believe in how you're training and practicing. And uh, and uh, if you think you need to adjust something, you think about it and uh, hopefully you choose the right path. Did that belief come from within you or did you need one or two mentors who really encouraged you to trust your ability? I think the belief comes within you. Uh, you have people help you, uh, whether they know it or don't know it. Uh, I remember one year I lost uh, in qualifying. I never played an ATP Tour event and lost to quali- in qualifying final round. And uh, I was 18 years old. And uh, instead of feeling sorry for myself next day, the guy said, hey, 10 o'clock, we're practicing, come and join us. So to me, at that time, I didn't know. But to me, that's a big, a big thing because you just go and keep doing what you're enjoying instead of pouting. You grew up in Ostrava, that time part of the of Czechoslovakia, which was part of the state-controlled economies of Eastern Europe. Was the prospect of being an international tennis player an ambition as a passport to get out of Czechoslovakia? Again, I think subconsciously. Um, subconsciously, you know that when you're young, you obviously don't know what you know or what... Uh, what uh, you know later Uh, when you look back at things yes clearly but at that time again just if I'm winning in Czechoslovakia I want to see how I do against kids from Germany or France doesn't matter who were your idols at the time did you have any idols well of course uh, the best tennis player we had was Jan Kodesh so uh, everybody looked up to him I used to ball boy for him 
And uh, then uh, I remember, recall, watching Wimbledon, whether it was 68 or 69, I'm not sure. And one of the matches, because we had only semifinals and finals on television, was Tony Roach against Rod Laver. And, uh, you know, you could ask, has it ever crossed your mind that Tony Roach will be your coach? Of course not, right? <laughs> was tennis thought of as a Western sport or was it very much part of the Czechoslovak sporting culture? It was always a big sport in Czechoslovakia because it had a very rich history. You can go to Koželuch and Drobny and those those players and Sukova in uh, 62 in finals of Wimbledon and so on. So... Uh, it was always bringing kids to the sport because they were popular players having success. And when you see success, you want to follow success. Um, you can look at certain things in other sports. And as soon as there is a successful team, let's say in football and makes Champions Leagues, others think, well, we can do that too. And uh, so History and success in the history of the game is extremely important because uh, it just shows you, we call it a pathway at the USDA. It's a pathway. If somebody in your family has done well on any level in uh, sports, well, you think you can do it too because you have seen it. And so when you were ball-boying for Jan Kodesh, were you just concentrating on the balls or were you watching little things from him that you would pick up? You don't watch for them, but you see them. And I know that for a week I would not be able to play because they took all the courts for the championships and so on and so on. Yet, the following Monday I was a better player than previous Monday just from watching. Because of what you picked up? Yeah, because what do you learn? You learn, uh, you learn strokes, you learn strategy, you learn psyche, you, you learn it all. Davis Cup, that was obviously a very big thing for you in terms of moving you forward. And in fact, you were a Davis Cup champion long before you were a Grand Slam champion. Tell me about getting into the Davis Cup team, what you learned from being the youngest and newest player on a very successful team. Well, we were not that successful when I joined your team. We got beat 5-0 at Eastbourne by uh, Buster Motram and uh, David Lloyd. But uh, again, to me, I don't go anywhere saying, oh, I'm going to see what I learn. I just go and see what I see, and eventually it will help me somewhere down the road. I could equate it to a golf lesson. I take golf lesson every every week once. And sometimes I'm driving home and saying, what the heck was that today? And 18 months later, I am doing something, and something happens. Oh, that's what he meant that time. And it's like that uh, learning, learning in tennis. You, okay, you do things, and you don't know why somebody did something. And then you're in similar situation and you realize why they did it and why did they go there and not there or hit shots there or somewhere else. And uh, it's more subconscious learning by paying attention. Yeah, I was going to say, um, the way you talk about it is, is very valid for the second half of your life when you've processed a lot. But as a... No, it's, it's, it's valid from the beginning. Right, okay. You just don't know it. Ah, okay. So you weren't conscious of that, but you knew what you were picking up by looking back on it now. Yeah, I... I I was learning subconsciously. I can analyze it later. So what did you get out of uh, Czechoslovakia winning the Davis Cup in 1980? Because that was a tremendous achievement. Well, uh, there I knew right away when we won in Argentina because uh, not many people know this, but uh, 
Uh, I have never beaten Vilas, never won a set from Vilas, and I have never beaten my good friend Jose Luis Clerc. And beating them on their court in Argentina just showed me that uh, no matter who the favorite is, anything can happen. So you got a sense of belief from those two wins? I don't know if sense of belief, but sense of, and we could say later, that's why we play sports, right? Because we don't know what the result will be. And no matter who the heavy favorite or what team the heavy favorite is, anything can happen. And that's what happened in Argentina. If we played there 25 times, maybe we would have won only once. And uh, it was a very curious match with Vilas, actually, because uh, that was before tiebreakers in Davis Cup. And I beat him 7-5-8-6-9-7. And he had set points in each set. <laughs> and, you know... Those are curious things which don't happen very often. There was then a period of about four years when you were very much a member of the world's elite, but you couldn't win a major. What was lacking there? Experience. Uh, it's simple as that. People make a big deal out of it. I never looked at it that way. I felt I'm still improving. I felt that every time I lost a match, it showed me where my weaknesses are and I can learn from that and improve them. And... Um, it also, uh, you know, losing to Borg at the French, I mean, okay, Borg was pretty heavy favorite. Uh, losing twice to Corners at the US Open, well, unless you're playing extremely well, losing to Corners at the US Open uh, can happen. And, um, you know, I lost to Mats in Australia, but my strategy wasn't right for the whole tournament. The, the way that grass played compared to the English grass, uh, I didn't have much experience on the Australian grass. And then when I realized that during the match, it was too late. So, uh, and then, then you go and win somewhere, which are surprises. I mean, both times I beat John, I kind of, I kind of uh, put my grand slams in four different categories. One is the two surprises or upsets of John uh, at the French in 84, where he beat me twice going into the F French Open. He beat me at Forest Hills and Düsseldorf on boat on clay. And he beat me twice in 85 on hard courts at, uh, I believe, Stratton Mountain in Montreal going into the US Open. And he was the favorite in both of them. And uh, both matches he got ahead. And I was able to turn it around. So that's one. Then. Total opposite was um, in '86 uh, when I played Pernforce and uh, and Machir in the French and U.S. Open finals, where I was the favorite, and that's totally different pressure. And uh, I was able to handle that. Uh, it can we can go back to the Davis Cup in 1980, where Argentina we were underdogs against Italian Prague we were heavy favorites, and those are two very different ways the things go and how you feel about it. And then uh, uh, 87, I beat Mats in Paris and Mats in, uh, at the US Open, where uh, I'm not sure if he played for number one that time or it was close, but uh, Mats was one of the toughest opponents I ever played against. And then um, the Australian Open after it went from Kuyong to uh, Flinders Park, Melbourne Park now, uh, on a different surface, which suited me more even though I was not a big fan of rebound ace because the bounces were still not as good as hardcourt. And uh, so those are the four, and uh, beat match here, and uh, then the match with Stefan where he couldn't finish, unfortunately. But uh, those are four totally different blocks in the eight grand slams, if you look at it. Winning when you expected to win goes 
to childhood or to junior days where we had tournaments together, 12th and 14th were together. And if you were good enough in 12th, you could play the 14th as well. So I did play usually two to three matches a day for three, four days. And I was expected to win the 12th, but not expected to win the 14th when I was 12. But I had to learn how to fight against guys who were bigger, stronger, better than me. And sometimes I would spring the upset and beat a couple of good players, but I won all my 12s. And that's where I learned how different it is when you're the underdog and when you're the player who is expected to win. And uh, that was good education. Tennis Worthy is not just a podcast. It's also a video series dedicated to the triumphs and challenges Hall of Famers and legends have overcome. From Althea Gibson breaking the color barrier to Billie Jean King's resiliency and Martina Navratilova's sacrifice of defecting from her homeland for a better future. Tennis Worthy tells the best stories of the game from the best players in the game through the defining values of tennis. To watch, visit TennisFame.com slash TennisWorthy. Ever wonder how tennis balls were packaged in the early 1900s? Or what was fashionable on the court in 1881? How about the rackets used by Jimmy Connors or Billie Jean King? All of that and more can be found in the International Tennis Hall of Fame's digital exhibits. The award-winning digital exhibits take you through tennis's most interesting history to the boundaries broken by black players to pave the way for today's stars. To view the digital exhibits, visit tennisfame.com slash digital exhibits. Let's send you back now to Chris Bowers for more of his conversation with Hall of Famer Yvonne Lendl. One of the big decisions you took in that period was to hire Tony Roach as your coach. Did he make a big difference or was it just a question of being comfortable with somebody the night before matches? I won uh, Roland Garros in 84. Feedback was my coach. At the end of the year, we decided that we we're going to go separate ways. And then Tony came on board. I was kind of fortunate uh, because that was before cell phones. And I was looking for a coach and my agents had three names for me. One was in Europe and it was five, six in the evening. Didn't reach that person. One was in California, called him, didn't reach that person either because that's three o'clock there, they're doing something. And so I called Australia and Tony picked up. And we spoke for quite a while and um, exchanged a lot of ideas and decided we will give it a try. I don't know what would have happened if I reached somebody else, probably would still want to talk to others because Tony obviously was sentimental because I watched him at Wimbledon, uh, 68 or 69. And uh, so I definitely wanted to speak to him. I also watched him in Davis Cup in Prague when he was leading two sets to nothing uh, and lost that match to Jiří Hřebec. And so I, I definitely wanted to talk to him no matter what. We have met once before. We played the doubles exhibition tournament in Melbourne, eight teams. I played with Steve Denton and they put Tony and uh, Nuke in there. They were older, so it wasn't pretty much fair, but we never really got to know each other until he started coaching me and he made a huge difference. He uh, brought a lot of experience. He has been on all, all four courts on Sunday, Sunday finals. You can't pay enough money for that. And so did you feel differently going into finals with Rochi in your corner because of 
something he would say to you in the run up to that final? No, it's it's not again, it's not anything conscious. It's a lot of little things he was doing he would be doing during training and he would just say in the car and and uh he would understand how difficult it is to get a pasta meal down at ten o'clock uh when you have two o'clock finals and he would sit with me while I'm doing it and so on and so on. So just the understanding that the person who is next to me has been through it and understands what it is, is tremendous. What do you think of as your greatest achievement of, of the eight slams you won or maybe the Davis Cup? I have two others, which obviously eight slams are huge. There are two other achievements, which not many, well, maybe even three, which many people don't talk about. Uh, my record at Wimbledon. Being in the semis seven times and two finals out of that, even though I never won, it was extremely difficult for me. We had two weeks between French and uh, Roland uh, and Wimbledon. Courts were not covered, so we lost three, four days of rain. Most of the time, and if you look at my early round results at Wimbledon, you will be saying, how did he play five sets with this guy? How did he play four sets with this guy? My question would be, how the heck did I beat those guys? Because many times, Sunday before Wimbledon, Rochi was still beating me. And I was 15 years younger than him. Because of grass court technique? Because of the style difference I had to adjust. So my Wimbledon record would be one of them. The other one would be two championships. I believe I qualified 13 times, and the first nine times I ended up playing the finals. At Grand Slams, you can win beating one player in top 10 or maybe even no players in top 10 if you get extremely good draw and players lose and so on and so on. In the Tour Championship, you're playing top eight guys every night. And uh, to be nine times in the final, to me, it's, uh, it shows a lot of consistency. And the third one is kind of a funny one. But if you think about it, it's crazy. I was born in 1960. I have never lost to anybody born 1960 or younger from Czechoslovakia, starting from day one, until I lost to Matt Shear in 1987. So I was 27 years old at Key Biscayne. Wow. That's mind-boggling if you think about yes. that, uh, but it's not obviously not on the world scale. But, uh, but it gives it, extra significance to Matej's victory against you at Kibiskane. Yes. Yeah. But uh, people don't know this, but I think it's a funny kind of tidbit. Do you still have nightmares about that net cord which Becker beat you at the no. 37th stroke of the rally on yeah. match point? No, it, it, things happen and uh, um, you. It, it's kind of funny. I think the lead courts, I think the bad calls, I think um, the bad draws, let's say, Saturday of the U.S. Open, when it used to be Super Saturday and you would have you somebody played at 11 and somebody played third from 11, and you always thought, okay, the guy who plays first has a huge advantage. If you look at it and study it, it will be about even who wins the finals. Uh, it will be about even also if somebody had three sets and the other guy had five sets. Uh, same thing with let courts. Same thing with matches I won from two sets to love down and I lost from two sets to love up. It, it just matters when it happens and the timing is everything.
So just going back to grass for a second, you made massive efforts to play what was then called grass court tennis. You even had a special racket made for you so that you could serve and volley. And then a couple of years later, you must have watched Agassi winning from the baseline. Was that a moment where you thought, heavens, why didn't I stick to my own game? I knew I couldn't because of my movement. I was a heavy mover, man-made mover, I would say. Uh, not that I moved badly, but on grass, I, uh, my turnarounds were just horrific. And uh, so staying back wasn't an option. One-handed backhand against two-handed backhand, staying back is also very difficult. I could deal with the uh, funky bounces at those days with a forehand, but with the backhand, I couldn't. So that, that was not a good option. I, I never be thought about it and rejected it very quickly. You've talked very openly about how the, the luck can spread itself evenly over the course of a match or a season. On grass, you've got to accept that there will be bad bounces all the time, even now with a much better courts. Well, you could minimise them uh, on the bad courts by coming in. Fine, and that was part of your philosophy. Absolutely. Yeah. Even throughout your peak years, you were a keen golfer, and at the end of your tennis career, you tried making it on the golf circuit. You played left-handed. Um, yeah. How much was golf important? How much did you have to suppress it? Was it useful as a as a escape? I never really played much while I played tennis. And uh, I was trained all my life to compete. And once I stopped tennis, golf came very handy in competition. I, I enjoyed the competition in golf till today. We have a couple of club championships coming up and I'm looking forward to it already. Uh, because once you train for that, it's hard to walk away from it. So golf is very useful to clear your mind. Even now, when, let's say, I'm at Wimbledon with Andy, I do go up to the club in the evenings, and I don't necessarily go and play. I will putt, I will chip, spend a couple hours with little music in my ear, and just clear my head, because otherwise it can get scrambled very quickly with all the pressures around, and it's nice to... Uh, Nice to have little time to yourself, do what you enjoy doing and refresh. So how was it coaching Andy Murray as a tennis coach and at the same time helping um, your daughters, especially one who played very, very high level of golf, as a dad? Well, three of them played high level and uh, I don't believe I did that at the same time. Uh, the only reason I agreed or uh, let me rephrase that, if they still needed me, I would not have worked with Andy. They were already in college when and family was gone, so I could travel and I could spend time with Andy because, as you probably can guess uh, or know, I don't like doing things halfway. I like to do things properly, and if I can't do it, I prefer not to do them. And uh, so once the kids were out of home and uh, going to college, my job was done. If you were giving advice to youngsters today, let's say mainly in tennis, but could be in other sports or in other disciplines, what's the most important thing you've learned that you'd pass on to youngsters? Well, I would, uh, I would say to youngsters, have fun. Because when you're having fun, you do better. But I would also say to parents, make sure they have good instruction early. Uh, I have seen it working with juniors at USTA and uh, the academies and all that. 
if you have, and I have seen it again retrospectively when I look at some of my friends I played with in childhood, the ones who had flaws in their strokes and in their technique were held back for a long time trying to fix it later. So if you can get uh, if you can get good instruction early and good fundamentals, the road is becoming a highway and you can keep improving. If you have to stop and fix it, you get past. Ivan Lendl, thank you very much for sharing your memories with us. Thank you. Ivan, thank you so much. And we couldn't agree more. Tennis is and should be fun for youngsters. And moms and dads, it's all about the fundamentals that pave the way to future success. If you like what you heard today, please share this show. The greatest compliment you can give us is to share it with those that you care about. The Tennis Worthy Podcast was created by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.